Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Justin and Camille. Yo! Today we recap World Vasectomy Day. We talk about the impacts of overpopulation and ways to get around the challenges of using resources with smarter use of water and genetically engineered crops. We also discuss the health of our oceans and salmon's relationship with hydropower. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is Adelaide. In Australia, yeah. just for in Australia. In case you're wondering. Yeah, not... Well, why? What have Adelaide done? Well, on October 18th in Adelaide, at the Royal Institution of Australia, RAOS, Dr. Doug Stein and his Australian vasectomy brother, Dr. Nick Demerduk, will have performed vasectomies in front of a live studio audience. Why? <laughs> well, funnily enough, it was World Vasectomy Day. Yay. And that was not in my calendar. I, I'm just going to put that out there. I, I did not receive that update. Well, make sure you put it in for next year. Yeah. Because... Well, what happened in Australia, like in Adelaide a couple of days ago, Australian men volunteered to have the vasectomies filmed in front of the studio audience and live streamed online. That, that, sounds, that sounds kind of cool. I mean, but why, why uh, did they push for all the uh, vasectomies? Well, yeah, um, starting with the science of vasectomy, through personal exchanges about men's choices to have a vasectomy and how vasectomies affect our lives and over the course of the day, broaden out to the wider conversation about the population on the planet. So I think the main point of the World Vasectomy Day is to raise kind of the awareness of how populated our planet is becoming. The final session featured Professor Paul Elric, author of The Population Bomb, who for the past 50 years has maintained the importance of addressing population issues for the future of all life on the planet. So in terms of, like, are we able to sustain the amount of life as well as, you know, keep other life on Earth um, a thing? That's, that's pretty incredible. I mean, as a, as a concept, so they're, they're really looking at vasectomies to help make the Earth a more sustainable place. Yeah, in, in terms of, like, controlling the population kind of thing, rather than, like, a huge influx. Because if you think about it, the population is just going to keep growing and being able to cap how much it's growing by by doing World Vasectomy Day and getting a vasectomy. Yeah, make sure there's maybe not any unplanned children or promoting that kind of awareness in which our planet is kind of heading. Yeah, that's certainly very interesting. So we were we were just talking about World Vasectomy Day and it's really based around the ideas of sustainable population size for the planet because, as you know, we're now at around 7 billion people and that's an awful lot of people on a very small planet and there's limited resources that we're trying to balance amongst everybody. And a lot of people have been interested in this idea for a very long time. So as Camille mentioned, one of the speakers at World Vasectomy Day celebrations in Adelaide uh, was Ralph, uh, sorry, Paul Elric, who's an American biologist uh, and is a professor of population studies at Stanford. And since the uh, 60s, he's been very passionate and about promoting this idea of a sensible and sustainable population size for the world. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, this is a huge cause for concern. Now, the idea of the movie Soylent Green 
um, and this is a bit of a plot twist reveal for all of you, is about the rampant overpopulation of the earth and the impacts of st- basically starving economies with an overcrowded, flat, hot and politically dangerous planet where there's not enough food to keep everyone alive. What kind of predictions did he make about where we were heading? Because it was he wrote the book like roughly 50 years ago, didn't he? Yeah. Like, what kind of predictions did he have for now? So he made some pretty alarmist predictions in his book, The Population Bomb, in the 70s, and basically said that, you know, uh, in by the year 2000, Britain will be a country with 78 million people and there will be a starving wasteland of <laughs> masses of basically starving crowds that will be fighting amongst themselves. And a lot of other dire predictions about a number of scenarios that were going to, were going to take place about basically the catastrophic apocalyptic mm. impact that it would have on the world. These may seem far-fetched, but at the time, this was something that was quite foreseeable. Population kept increasing, and they couldn't see how, with the current crop yields, that they could feed everyone. And so they were very concerned about that. So what changed to make what would have been an accurate prediction become so ridiculous now looking back at it? And this is where we get into some really, really interesting science. So the science of predicting and forecasting that Elric was using aren't that bad off. If you look at the actual numbers, we're not too far away. Well, I mean, we're at 7 billion, which, isn't, which is quite large compared to what we were back in the 1960s. The reason why we can feed all of these people is by a series of scientific researchers, grants, innovations, and technologies known as the Green Revolution. So this occurred between 1940s and 1960s and was a culmination of many different scientific research programs starting in the United States but with also with applications in India and the Philippines and the rest of the developing world which completely revolutionized farming. Well, it's pretty cool that um, just as like, well, not really a slight, a huge shift in what would have resulted in pretty much like a 2012 the movie type end of the world kind of thing yeah and it was really interesting so the scientists themselves were really the ones to credit for all this innovation and actually making sure and getting more out of our farms so farming is really hard okay so and you have to expend a lot of energy a lot of resources such as water and fertilizer to actually grow anything the amount of energy you put in and the amount of usable plant for food that you get out as opposed to all the waste is referred to as yield. Okay, so that's just a little bit of something to be aware of. Yeah. And the innovations have, they went mostly were to increase the yield. So instead of just getting, you know, um, a small amount, they were increasing the yield so that what they got out of all their effort by 10, 10 times at least, if not more. Jeez. So one of the really interesting examples of this is India. And this mm-hmm. India is one of the countries that benefited most from the Green Revolution. So in about 1961, there India was basically on the brink of a massive famine. Think about how big a country India is now, uh, and even in the 60s, it was still very large. Wow. Yeah. So the Ford Foundation and the Indian government worked together to use a new type of seed. They brought in new plants to India um, that they'd been used on. Like A couple of research institutions had made some changes, bred some certain types of plants that were really effectively in growing. So they, they brought in a type of rice, that um, was really, really super effective when growing with certain types of fertilizer and certain types of um, irrigation. Increased the yield 10 times on rice growing. 
which meant that, they referred to it as miracle rice because now instead of one little bit of one hectare of land being enough to feed a certain group of people, they could now feed entire villages. And this, this famine crisis was averted just by planting better seeds. Well, that's really amazing that they were able to help that. But I thought like those gen- genetically engineered crops were really bad and awful to the environment. Like, Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is that GM food, genetically engineered food, is evil because it's not natural. The problem is that nature is really good at doing certain things and nature adapts to its environment very well. It will develop mm. plants that are resistant to uh, bugs and it will develop plants that can live in their environment. When that environment changes, when you have suddenly different types of farmland or there's climate change, for example, the situation changes really quickly and it, it changes faster than nature can adapt. Nature will evolve and, and adapt to the circumstance, but it will take time. And quite frankly, we humans, if we're trying to feed ourselves to stay alive, we won't. We don't have that kind of luxury. Yeah, we don't have the time to wait for Mother Nature to catch up to where we are. Yeah. So scientists work really hard to find examples of and speed along with the adaptation and growth, whether that being taking um, some traits that certain bugs or plants have that make them resistant to pests and putting that into our crops. So that way our crops don't die from having exposure to all these insects when we don't have to use pesticides on them, which is one really nice example. The other examples that like in the case of the rice is making the rice adapt better and grow better in its environment. And it's little things like that we can do with genetic engineering of the food to really improve yields and mean that we can feed people and keep them alive faster than what nature would have intended. And that's the really important difference. So science one, mother nature zero. It's more like speeding up the process of mother nature rather than replacing her. So on the same lines of being able to feed everyone in the world, one big resource we need is water. There's a thing called the Ocean Health Index, which is an annual assessment of ocean health. So the Ocean Health Index only focuses on how it benefits people and rather than the ocean. Okay, so they're trying to measure the the usefulness of the oceans to humanity and basically see if... By doing that, keeping it sustainable for both the ocean life and our life? Oh, okay. So they're, they're looking at making sure that the ocean itself is healthy for us but also healthy for the animals. Kind of looking for that balance within the ocean. That makes sense. And that that's a really interesting thing to consider because we take a lot out of the ocean. So we need to consider about... What, what we're doing to it when we do that you know it's so important for our trade and our food and our just our general enjoyment as well like with the great barrier reef kind of if you're going to make a comparison to it um i guess maybe you wouldn't go eating like a rotten tomato that you've grown in poor soil or whatever or you gotta want to change how you're growing that tomato to make it more healthy for both you and the tomato's life not that a tomato is like a sentient being I hope tomatoes aren't sentient <laughs> beings. Otherwise, uh, we are probably in doomed. For, yeah, doomed. Doomed is definitely the outcome there. That, that's really interesting. So what, what do these findings, what kind of things do they measure when they try and measure the healthiness of the oceans? So how they kind of measure the health of the ocean is through a whole bunch of categories. And in those categories, they get scored from 0 to 100 and have a range of things they're looking for. And some areas we all... On a global scale, we all score relatively high, whereas others, we 
score relatively like as low as 31 out of 100. So, so this what, kind what, what kind of categories are they looking at? So they're looking at biodiversity, clean waters, carbon storage, coastal protection, tourism, recreation, coastal livelihoods and economies and food provision, just to name a couple. The more wealthy countries, they scored worse um, in comparison to the global average. It can kind of be taken that even though your country's well off and rich, it's maybe not that great for your ocean environment. And going on from co- um, rich countries, another kind of area that perform worse are really cyclone-prone countries with populations exceeding 10 million people. For example, in their category of coastal protection, the score is only 51 compared compared to the global average of 69. So that kind of tells us something about how the cyclones, I guess, are impacting on the health of the ocean in that region. So that kind of tells us that in those cyclone-prone countries that we need to work on how the ocean recovers after those big natural events and how we can better plan how we live to help them out in that process. Yeah, and that, that's that's something that's really interesting when we consider making sure that our oceans are safe and being able to recover from everything that the nature throws at us. We all love hydropower. Everyone talks about hydropower as being one of the best ways to, you know, solve our energy problems because it's 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 not noisy, it doesn't have big wind turbines that kill birds, they're not really visible, it's in our rivers, it's really quite straightforward. And the interesting part about that is that when we talk about all these turbines, we put them in natural river systems like the Snowy Hydro, we have to be really careful in how we consider the impact it's having on the environment. And there's a lot of work that goes into safely designing rivers and power systems that work on these rivers to ensure that environmental flows can continue and the natural life in those environments is not damaged. Yeah, there don't they make a lot of models to kind of test out because I can't really see how it will infect it other than putting it directly in. So they just have a look at different models that they make to see the impact. And that kind of makes this choice between do you want a healthy, environmentally safe river or do you want power? And that's kind of a, a really bad choice because, you know, especially for environmentalists who, who views you know, hydropower is really useful and they, they, they need it for their, for their arguments for cleaning up the environment. So it makes it quite tough a choice. And often there's little things like little fish farms and fish gateways where they can the fish can swim and they can go up through like a lock system so that they yeah. can get from one area to the next without having to uh, fight against the flow of the current. And there's a lot of really innovative things like big water wheels that lift up and catch fish and push them along the river. And there's a lot of cool stuff like that going on. But you'd think if you... If you regulated and said that, yes, you need to have all these fish in your streams as well as solar power, that you'd end up with bad results. Obviously, someone has to lose out. Like, that just seems intuitive. No one can, no one can win-win, can they, in this, like, kind of situation? Well, and, but the really funny part is the, uh, in Norway, um, at one of the national research centres into environmentally friendly energy, uh, the Na- Norwegian University of Science Technology and the Norwe- Norwegian Institute for Nature have been doing a whole bunch of research into a lot of rivers. And what they found is that salmon in Norway and all these rivers governed by these big complex hydropower schemes are actually thriving. They're doing better in the rivers with the oh hydropower than in the rivers without them. Oh, and why is that? What are they, one of the things their research came up with is a whole set of guidelines that help design rivers and schemes to really make sure that the salmon... Uh, so the designs that make for efficient hydro hydropower also make for efficiency for the salmons. <laughs> so it ends up being like a confluence. What's good for hydropower ends up being what's good for salmon. 
and they, they benefit from, from the combination of these things. It really lines up with an interesting idea of working in harmony with nature and using some of the designs that nature has and the, the biomimicry aspect of it. And it's really amazing that in such a circumstance, nature can adapt really well to what we have engineered to go with it. Yeah, well, that's good that at least the animals can benefit from something that you would think would impact negatively on their environment. So for all you environmentalists out there, don't worry, even fish vote for hydropower. Today we discussed the connection between population and sustainability. We also looked at the health of our oceans and discussed the rise of GM crops and how it means we can feed the planet. We also talked about the lessons we can learn from nature to improve our turbines.